to some degree, Social Security is incredibly complex. But where it is today, it also is incredibly simple because it raises taxes, puts it in a fake government fund, (laughs) right? And then it pays them out. So you've got to spick it on the front and the back end. You can increase the amount of taxes that are coming in, or you can increase or decrease, again, the amount of money going out. So most of the proposals in the last couple of years, increasing taxes to some degree is going to be part of the solve. That's a balance and trade-off. In essence, we're saving for our future because we're living longer than we used to live, and we have less people in the workforce paying in to cover the people who are now retired. There is another aspect on that, how much is coming into system for all of these retirees. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset Show. This is a podcast about the financial, money, and recreational mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset Show and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Jamie Hopkins, the managing director of Carson Coaching and the director of retirement research for Carson Group. Jamie is one of the most well-known and educated people in the area of wealth management. In addition to his role at Carson Group, he is a finance professor of practice at Creighton University's Hyder College of Business, and he has helped co-create the Retirement Income Certified Professional, RICP, designation at the American College of Financial Services. Jamie is the author of the book, Rewirement, Rewiring the Way You Think About Retirement Planning. And if all this was not enough, He was named as Top 40 Young Attorney by the American Bar Association and a Top 40 Financial Service Professional under the age of 40 by Investment News. In 2020, his work on retirement planning and the SECURE Act won an award from WealthManagement.com for being the best thought leadership advisor education in the industry. I have known and followed Jamie and his work for several years, and now he is a go-to for me when we are in need of an outlook on how things in the world might affect the markets, and we love having him as part of our team. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the distinct pleasure of being with Jamie Hopkins. He's the Managing Director of Carson Coaching and the Director of Retirement Research for Carson Group. Thanks for joining us today, Jamie. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Larry. It's uh, good to see you and hear you. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I thank you taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. And I want to give listeners a little bit of an idea of who you are and where you came from and have you tell about your path to Carson Group. And in that, also tell us about your roles as both the managing director of Carson Coaching and the director of retirement research. So first, how did you end up here? Yeah, so kind of taking that story back, like a lot of people, family is impactful for your path. And especially for me, my dad passed away at a young age and kind of watched my mom run her own business, struggle a little bit with finances and end up kind of looking like a lot of Americans out there that are very reliant on Social Security, heading into retirement, almost has her mortgage paid off. 
And that's her in her late 60s now, and she's still working. And over the course of my life, I kept seeing this kind of financial struggle. And then you'd watch TV and you'd see ads saying, hey, come do your retirement planning here. And I'd be like, well, what does somebody like my mom do? And that question was always in my head because I was like, I know she doesn't have the assets that these TV commercials were kind of looking for to bring people in. So I kind of continued to progress. I actually got to work on one of Bernie Madoff's cases when I was clerking in the appellate division, which is a really cool kind of primer and intro to the trust factor around (laughs) financial wealth. And ended up a bunch of different things. I started a private equity to estate planning, clerked in the appellate division. And then I spent about seven years at American College building out retirement income education and teaching. And through that, you know, I got to meet Ron Carson, Aaron Shaben here at Carson Group, and eventually kind of came over to lead up what you might call thought leadership and direction around retirement. And that's kind of where the research writing process piece came into play and to deliver that out for advisors and then ultimately the end client. Coaching uh, came about a little bit later, and that's more so because I have an experience building content and programs, and so stepped into our coaching company to head that up and just roll out some new content programs and advisor education, kind of best practices on that side, at least what I could come up with (laughs) for best practices. Right. And uh, listen, I'm sorry about your dad. You know, I had a similar experience myself. I lost my mom at the age of 47. She was 47. I was in my early 20s. So I know how impactful something like that can be an event when you lose a parent at a young age and you see the remaining parent and how they handle and go through things. It really resonates and sticks with you for sure. Yeah. I mean, all of those experiences, whether, you know, we often ask about your first money memory, but all those early childhood and early age experiences and even later on, right, start to shape who we are and then how we relate to things, what our goals are, the emotions around different things, how we react to even simple words. So it's all very formative onto who we were and where we're going. Yeah, absolutely. And I did not know about the Bertie Madoff work. So I'm curious, what was a big takeaway from you in working in that situation? Was there something that sticks with you today? Well, th- there were two things. A lot of times I try to come up with three, but there's always two that <laughs> resonate. I, mean, I guess the third one, it was just interesting that I got to work on it. That's the first one. Sure. Uh, second one was how creative insurance was on avoiding claims. So (laughs) like there were some really, really creative insurance claims around it, being that people use their homeowner policies to try to sue and collect under them saying that it was money stolen from a bank vault. Wow. Most homeowners policies actually do have a little bit of coverage if money was stolen from a bank vault, which is interesting because if you think about money at bank vaults, it's already insured. So really your homeowners insurance is probably (laughs) not taking on much coverage there. Risk, yeah. Yeah. But they argued that, you know, a losing argument here, but that was really creative. And then the third one's the the really the major one. And by the end, it was so blatant and just disregard for everything at that point on Bernie Madoff's side that like you can just see how it was just all trust and reliance, right? Like it was just kind of blind trust. Hey, this person has our money and they're doing well with it and they're doing right by us. I mean, because at the end, right, he wasn't even attempting to invest. It was literally just going into his own bank account. They had one account. All the money was going in there, just creating fake accounts 
fake statements, fake return. Like, it's kind of amazing that it got to that level because it's just blind trust. And I think that's the part that you realize that how much people end up trusting advisors and advice and financial professionals with their money. And the bad stories are really harmful because so much of this service and profession is built on trust. Yeah. That whole situation was one of the main reasons when we started in the RIA space and eventually working with Carson Group that we wanted somebody who was going to custody with a large institution for that very reason, because we didn't want ourselves or the entity we were affiliated with responsible for creating those statements and confirms because it just opens up that Pandora box to some degree. Yeah. And I mean, I go back and forth on this. Some days you see people saying, hey, we need smaller companies that are more creative. And then on the flip side, right, there's safety and the secure large thing that you're, (laughs) you know, is established and there's transparency around. So it's kind of a balance in the financial space on that thinking, I would say, uh, whether we need small disruptive (laughs) things or you go back to the large custodians that people can log into their account and they can trade and move their money and see the statements right there. Right. Agreed. You are the managing director or director of retirement research and retirement planning is such an important part of what an advisor does and how we help clients and what clients are interested in. Most people are interested in what is my retirement going to look like? Why is it such a difficult topic in many instances for clients to approach? Yeah, there's a bunch of reasons. It's one of those areas that there isn't necessarily a single answer. But uh, the more time I've spent with it, one of them is because you've never experienced it before, right? You haven't lived through retirement, so it's very hard to know what it's going to feel like. Right. The other thing is just how big of a time period it really is in our lives. I saw this not too long ago, but right, like if you're graduating from college, right, you're 22, right? You could have the same investing time horizon to retirement that somebody does in retirement. Right. So you get somebody that retires at 62, 40 years, very possible. Mm-hmm. So you literally could have just as long of a time horizon as somebody entering their first job. So that's a really big thing, right? And really, there's no other time period where we try to plan out the next 30 to 40 years. We really don't do that when we enter the workforce, right? Like mm-hmm. Very few people say, well, let me try to imagine what my last job will be <laughs> like here, right? right? That's really hard to do. So just the time period there is very hard. And the other thing is that everything changes along the way. So we don't have experience and knowledge around it, right? It is an incredibly long time period. And then it's shifting. And typically, the analogy I use to describe the whole thing is it's like trying to hit a moving target in the wind. And the target is your individual goals. It's moving because we don't know how long we'll be in there. And then there's wind because things are going to change along the way. The easiest one to talk about there is public policy risk, right? Is tax laws are going to change. Retirement laws are going to change. All that's going to move. And then all of a sudden you have to adjust. So we can't expect to go in a straight line from the first day of retirement all the way through 30 years. You know, it's just not realistic. So that creates a really challenging atmosphere for planning. Yeah, we have these conversations often, which I'm sure you hear all the time. Clients have this suspicion as they get close to retirement or even entering retirement that all of a sudden they have to become super conservative. And because that's what they were told and parents or grandparents, you know, when they retired, maybe they only had five or 10 years left to live, you know, based upon life expectancy back then. Now we're dealing with a much longer time horizon. And in many cases, getting them to understand and see that 
what you just said, their time horizon from where they started to where they are today, maybe almost exactly the same going forward for the rest of their life. And you have to take that into account. It's tough, tough. Yeah. And the other thing is we're kind of in the the, almost social experiment of can we do this, right, with investable assets and not pensions, right? We did it before everyone's experiences. Well, my grandmother, my grandparents, my parents did fine. Well, the previous generations, right, there were more people, not everyone, right? But more people had pensions and more people actually had a higher, in essence, right, replacement of their income via Social Security. So we know that that's dropped down over the years, according to Social Security data. So that's one we've kind of, I don't know if you'd say lost those two, but the dynamics have shifted. And we're going to very soon from today start seeing people retire with much less lifetime income sources. And you have to do that from right distributing an IRA or 401k. And we haven't really seen that at the the same levels we'll see it attempted (laughs) over the next 30 years as we saw the last 30 years. So we're probably going to learn some things that don't work well, unfortunately, with people's lives over the next 30 years. Yeah. So, I mean, with this long time horizon, with this changing landscape in terms of pension and that income replacement, what are three things that those planning for retirement should make sure that they are doing either right before leading up to retirement or shortly therein? Well, the easy one to say first, which is just engage in planning. There's research I've published in Journal of Financial Planning before. People with a written financial and retirement plan, right, feel more confident about their own retirement heading into it. So you want to feel more confident, right? It's good to have a plan in place. (laughs) That's not terribly difficult, but we do see very many people do not enter retirement with kind of a full scale plan. I would say the next one is, I don't always bring this one up, but it's on my mind, especially because of 2020 and COVID and the impact it had on nursing homes, which long-term care is a really big risk in retirement. As we have increased longevity, most as a trend, at least recent years, right? And long-term care costs going up and up and up. And you see uh, studies out there suggesting the single room, private room in a nursing home costing over $100,000 a year, that becomes a very expensive and kind of unfunded liability for many people in retirement. So as part of the planning is just what is that risk? And then what are we going to do about it? It doesn't always mean that a product is the solution. And I think that's where some people get lost with when they hear long-term care, their mind immediately goes to long-term care insurance. They say, well, I don't want that. But that doesn't mean we can't do long-term care planning, right? right? Like there's a whole world of other things. And some of it's just figuring out how expensive it could be and what risk that would have. Where would we get the income? What type of care do we want? So that's obviously a really kind of big piece of it. And then the other one just goes back to what we kind of talked about before, which is really the the whole goal of retirement planning is to not run out of money. So do we have sustainable income sources or ways to generate income throughout retirement? And some of those have been challenged lately. I knew a lot of people who really pushed rental property and renting. And then we saw some areas in 2020 get absolutely decimated for rental, right? Right. People stopped paying. The rental rates came down substantial in some areas. And so people had shifted all their money from the markets and CDs and bonds and bought rental property and thinking that was the safe way to go. And all of a sudden, 20, 30%, 40% of their income vanished in a year where 
they didn't expect that, which gets back to the value of diversification in any conversation, (laughs) which is diversified income sources. And honestly, relying too much on any one income source, I think is always a red flag. Sometimes you can't avoid it, but it is something to at least be cognizant of. Those are very good points. I agree with you. I think having a plan is very important. Long-term care is certainly a potential risk that at least has to be talked about and discussed as far as what the game plan would be for the client. And diversification and having those income sources are all great points. And there are things that we're seeing being done, and some of them aren't being done. I think to some degree, we found with clients, some in particular are nervous about writing and going through a formal planning process because they're afraid of what's going to be on the other side. We've had clients who've gone through the formal planning process, and then we go through and they're like, oh, wow, I didn't realize I'd be okay. I didn't do this for the last five years because I was afraid of what the outcome is. And I think that speaks to your point earlier about us having this long time horizon and not really knowing what's going to happen over that period of time. There are so many moving parts. Are you seeing there are things that are people are doing regularly that has an adverse effect on their retirement? What are the most common things that you're seeing out there? Yeah, I think from an adverse standpoint, actually, you brought up one before that's kind of loosely tied to it is just probably not have and I guess it's just not having the right asset allocation in general. So that is a big one. A lot of do it yourself. You can see some people fall into home bias and they invest too heavily in companies that they know well, you know, from their state. That's been kind of where home bias comes from. But typically, you you know, the company that's from your state because, you know, people who work there. So you tend to over invest in it. Interestingly enough, that actually goes all the way up to professional fund managers. So um, (laughs) this is not actually a bias that only impacts individuals, but it can mess up your asset allocation. You mentioned another one, and I remember the kind of TV, I think John Oliver bit. And at the end of the John Oliver one, he talked about financial services and preparing for retirement. He made a joke that every year that a new bond movie comes out, just go buy more bonds and less equities. And and what was he really explaining? He was explaining the old right take 100 and subtract out your age. And that's your allocation. You just keep moving it more and more conservatively over time. Interestingly enough, right, there's actually not a lot of research to suggest that that's a good strategy. You brought up before people think, oh, I just need to get really, really conservative. But if you get to 100% in bonds, and you're like 65, 70 years old, unfortunately, right, like you might not be able to generate enough income out of that in return to actually make it last 30 or 40 years, depending on your spending rate. So do you have to take on some risk to hit your spending goal? You might have to. Some of the research out there, Wade Fowl and Michael Kitsis uh, posted an article first on Kitsis blog, and then eventually was published in Journal of Financial Planning on the rising equity glide path. And their research, which is just looking at markets and distributions, right, is just, hey, look, actually, what interestingly enough performs better is actually you start with a low amount, which is kind of what a lot of the theories would suggest in equities. And so more in bonds, CDs, fixed income. And then you actually just kind of spend that down and you let your equity piece grow over time. So in essence, you're becoming riskier and riskier in the market throughout retirement. And that actually outperformed significantly the one that declines in equity over time. And what actually surprised them is that piece didn't surprise them from talking to them. The part that surprised them was actually that it actually outperformed a more level percentage, right? Just going 50-50. 
Right. They really didn't expect that. They were like, you know what? If you take on more risk over time, in general, you should perform better, right? I mean, not in every case, but in right. general. But they were really shocked that it actually outperformed the kind of the 50-50 bond stock portfolio mix. So that research uh, has definitely kind of tested, I think, some people's planning. I don't see very many people adopting that, though. There's there's another that's the compliance side piece is like, I don't still know if you want like a 95 year old client to be like 98% (laughs) in equities, right? We'd also need a big psychological shift in the investor psychology in order to accommodate that also, (laughs) because I'm not sure that they would support that. No. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. We've also been dealt in addition to what the normal things we have going against us, if you will, with regard to retirement. We've also seen some changes recently in the retirement planning net landscape in particular. Speaking about the SECURE Act, that's going to certainly have an impact on what and how people should be thinking about retirement. How do you see that also playing into more longer-term planning for people? Yeah, so if we get kind of to the public policy risk and tax law, SECURE Act, obviously the biggest one we've had kind of directly at retirement laws in recent years. All of these have shifted the landscape and to some degree planning. I don't think the SECURE Act shifted planning immediately for most general people in the sense of like really on how their savings should be identified, whether we're Roth or traditional, but it should get more attention than it is. Part of the problem was is that passed right at the end of 2019. (laughs) And I thought, I'm going to spend all of 2020 out talking about the Secure Act. And then like March 13th, right, the whole world shut down. (laughs) And it's like, everyone stopped caring about like this retirement tax bill that passed three months ago. (laughs) Didn't seem very important anymore. But I mean, it drastically changed uh, some of the incentives for Roth conversions, Roth planning, your beneficiaries, whether to hold your IRAs inside of a trust, whether or not to, to change some of that language. It opened up new savings capabilities that are push RMDs back further. So that shifted a lot of the little pieces. I think the big shifts are still to come on retirement planning. I've probably been in this camp or mindset group for a while, which is we're going to eventually see higher taxes. It's kind of like the rain dance, though. Like if you do it for long enough, we'll eventually see higher taxes. Yeah. You just have to keep saying it because you go back to 2010 and I could have surveyed a room and seen a bunch of people say, yeah, I think tax rates are going to go up. You fast forward to 2020 and tax rates were lower for most people. So we did go through an entire decade where interest rates were low. There was a need for tax revenue spending increase across Democratic and Republican controlled houses, Congress, president. And deficits just continue to grow. And everyone said, well, eventually we're going to deal with this. But I do think there's some reality to that. Eventually, there's a breaking point. And there's a lot of disagreement to where that breaking point is. But if you believe, and here's the part, it doesn't really matter if we end up being right or wrong. But if you lose sleep or you care or you believe that tax rates are going up, you should then act in accordance with that, right? Like that would be rational behavior. I believe X. I should then act in accordance with X, right? Consistent behavior. So then that opens up a bunch of different changes on how you might approach retirement planning. And do you foresee these changes sticking with us or do you see them further changing based upon things that are coming down the pike or you think that it'll just stay as is for the foreseeable future? Oh, no, I definitely see a lot of change coming. (laughs) 
the biggest one, right, is uh, that's in front of us is fixing Social Security. That's the single biggest proposal inside of Biden's tax plan from an individual tax perspective, right? So that's the biggest piece of it. I forget the exact number. It's almost what a trillion dollars in revenue over the next 10 years, 900 billion or something like that. Like that's a huge piece of this, uh, what Biden ran on. So, you know, that's a big deal. And the modifications of inherited pieces and Roth savings, we get floated proposals every year to continue to change that. I think there's a little momentum with the SECURE Act and actually some of the things in the CARES Act in 2020 that we are going to see some continued modifications in some of the tax bills, relief bills as we move throughout the next at least two years. Interesting. So let's go change over to Social Security for a minute since you brought that up, because one of the questions we very often receive, especially from those that are close to or very near to starting to collect Social Security is, do we even take that into account? Is it going to be there? What do you have to say to folks who are really concerned, who are maybe three to five years out, or even just looking to collect soon? Is Social Security going to be there for them, in your opinion? Yeah. So when we bring my opinion in, I believe Social Security is going to be there. That's my gut feeling and opinion. And then I try to back it up with some facts. Right? <laughs> so first of all, Social Security is a huge piece of what Americans rely upon in retirement. So for almost one third of retirees, right, it's over 90% of all their income. For another almost third, it's more than half. So it's right around 62-ish percent, give or take the year. Social Security puts out that number every year and says, look, more than right 60% of retirees, Social Security is more than half their income. So what does that mean, right? It means that's the primary source of income for the majority of retirees. Right. If you were to take that away, what would it do? It would collapse our economy is what it would do, right? Because what it would mean is our senior population essentially would about half of them or more would become destitute right? Unable to make any of their payments, unable to make their medical bills, their housing, their food, and it would cause a huge economic issue across the board. So when people are just like, oh, it's going to go away, well, this, it can't go away in the sense that we can't have some type of secure income for retirees. Social Security still does a really good job at what it was meant to do. It was meant to give, right, a floor of income and keep people out of poverty. And we still have less seniors in poverty today than the general population. It still does exactly what it was designed to do. Also, Social Security, I bring this up in a lot of presentations. I've made this argument, even though I'm sure people disagree with it, but it it is arguable that Social Security is the single most efficient financial instrument ever built, (laughs) right? So like, you might want to change it. You need to modify it. You need to update it. But Social Security runs at an overhead cost of less than 1% for the entire system. It's why no annuity will ever have a better payout rate than Social Security, right? You can't run an insurance company with a less than 1% overhead charge. Well, why? Social Security doesn't have marketing, really, right? It doesn't have R&D. It doesn't have a sales force, right? (laughs) Like, it doesn't have any of these things that build up all this overhead in traditional companies. So it operates very, very effectively. And, you know, what is it, 94 
ish percent of the U.S. population now, working population, pays into Social Security today. So it's got almost everyone covered. Everyone pays in. It does need to be updated because people are living longer, right, than the last time Social Security was updated. And, right, interest rates have come down substantially, which has a s- impact on the trust fund aspect of it. Right. So those are really the two big things. It could be renamed. I used to joke, could it be renamed the Trump income plan? Sure. Like, could it be named the Biden income plan? Sure. Like, could you have the name change? Yes. But are we going to have to have a system where we're Retirees have secure income. Yes. Is there any chance that like the way that we have our government and system set up today, we can operate without it? Not really. So in that sense, right, there's a huge reliance on it. It's also the single biggest government program. I mean, by far, people always say military, but it's not even close. And Social Security, from a tax perspective, is our biggest tax and our biggest right outflow of money goes to Social Security and Medicare. So we always hear a lot of times that the Social Security fund, trust fund, is going to run out of money by such and such a date, right? So what is the mechanism by which that they could make that last longer? Because you say probably not going to go away because we're not going to make a greater group of our population destitute when 50, 60% of our population rely on it as a large percentage of their income. So what are the options out there to make this thing last longer that you foresee as viable? To some degree, Social Security is incredibly complex, but where it is today, it also is incredibly simple because it raises taxes, puts it in a fake government fund, (laughs) right? And then it pays them out, right? So you've got to spick it on the front and the back end. You can increase the amount of taxes that are coming in, or you can increase, right, or decrease, again, the amount of money going out. So most of the proposals in the last couple of years, increasing taxes to some degree is going to be part of the solve. That's a balance and trade-off, right? In essence, we're saving for our future because we're living longer than we used to live. And we have less people in the workforce paying in to cover the people who are now retired. So you, there is there is another aspect on that, how much is coming into the system for all of these retirees. And that's what most of the proposals have been floated out there is increase taxes to some degree and shift these benefits. Some proposals, Bernie Sanders, Biden have suggested increasing maybe a bigger floor of benefits. So there is a true minimum Social Security benefit, but then maybe decreasing some benefits based off of income. When President Trump ran for office before, he actually ran on the proposal that they would means test Social Security. A lot of people forget that. We didn't end up really getting a proposal during the four years, but um, did run on means testing of Social Security, meaning reducing benefits down at some high higher end range. Never got that range. But that's a legitimate option, right? Somebody who's pulling a million dollars a year out of Social Security, could you reduce some of that back? And you could do it in a multitude of ways. You could increase taxes on it. So it goes back to the trust or you could actually just reduce down benefits. So I think all of those are kind of viable things that could be addressed. The one that the Biden administration has floated is really just adding a Social Security tax back on after $400,000 of income. So Social Security Trust Fund every year does talk about what's the total amount of taxes you'd have to raise to make the fund solvent for their projection time period. So they do kind of report that every year. So that analysis is done annually. So it's not that we're kind of shooting in the dark for how much tax revenue we need to create. (laughs) 
Yeah, clearly something's going to give at some point or something's going to have to change if we're going to keep this a viable option, which it seems like we have no choice in making it an option to begin with. So it's just a matter of how do we fix this in the best manner possible and have it there as a part of our client's overall planning, if you will. Yeah, well, we always have a choice, right? And I always tell people we, the, the other choice is you could just get rid of it, but then you're choosing to say, hey, I'm okay with two thirds of our retirees just being completely broke, right? So like, I don't think we want to do that. The other one is, can you come up with a better system? Arguably, Social Security at this point, right, has lasted longer than most companies, every politician, every other financial instrument we've seen. So it's hard to say somebody can create a better system when we've never seen one yet ever be created that's any better. Right. right? As I said, like people can argue about the private world, but there is no private world product that comes anywhere near to what Social Security is being able to do so far. So every annuity, every insurance product fails in comparison. So, okay, we haven't built one in the private world in the last 100 <laughs> years. So are we going to solve one in one year if we try What's to go build change something? now? Right. Looking at the macro level dynamics, it's very hard to see how you would get there. So as we start working with our clients and, and we're working with mainly, you know, the people listening to this show, what do you foresee as additional changes coming to the retirement landscape with the new administration? You already touched on higher taxes are coming at some point, whether it's this administration or another, who knows? But do you see any things on the horizon that as an advisor working with our listeners that we should be keeping in mind as we do that work? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple things that are big, it's just, it, I think there's going to be continued shifts to RMD planning. So required minimum distributions. There was a proposal that got floated right at the end of 2020 to a pushback. Actually, it's not the first time it's been floated, but to push back RMDs to 75. So we might get even more and more space there. Now, here's the interesting thing. I have mixed feelings on this. One, I think they should have just moved it back to 75 in the SECURE Act. That was one of the proposals out there and they went with 72. Right. And then we're a year later and reproposing it again. Just move it back if you're going to move it back. However, there's a weird argument about RMDs. Yes, it provides flexibility. And there's some analysis by like um, EBRI, Boston Retirement Research, that suggests this is beneficial for people because it gives them more tax deferred time not to take out money. But most retirees have to take their RMD out each year to just get by. RMDs are actually a really good retirement income strategy too. It's taking your current account value. So it actually adjusts, well, end of year, right? December 31 mm -hmm. and adjusts for markets. So it adjusts for volatility and it adjusts for your life expectancy every year and distributes something that will actually last throughout your life. It's a better system than say the 4% rule. It actually has a higher Monte Carlo tested success rate than a 4% type fixed distribution rule. So as we pull that away, and like sometimes you hear, hey, we should just get rid of RMDs. So everyone has flexibility. I then worry about the behavioral side. And was an RMD strategy actually just a really good strategy to have in place? Because it actually is one of the best tested strategies. Like it's a good strategy the follow-up approach. Yeah. Yeah. Keeps you disciplined. I mean, I think to me, the bigger change that we saw was certainly the loss of the stretch 
was, in my view, if you have IRA owners and we were to survey them, would you rather push back your RMD from 70 and a half to 72 or 75 or keep the stretch provision allowing you or your beneficiaries, your non-spouse beneficiaries to take their distributions over their lifetime rather than the 10 years where we're at now? I think they would have voted for the uh, stretch. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, when you look at those two, the removal of the stretch was a much bigger tax revenue generator than, than adding the year and a half. Maybe. That's how they're paying for the two years that they just got, right? Yeah, it's it's actually how they paid for all like, well, there's I think there's 29 separate provisions in that bill, but most of the tax revenue really had to do with one provision, which was the removal of the stretch. I mean, that was the major tax provision in the bill. And in a 10-year analysis in the CBO, it was tax revenue generating. Not a whole lot, but it was a tax revenue generating provision. My read of all that is actually going to generate more revenue than even the CBO projection, because when you think about the 10-year span that they looked at, the 10th year wouldn't have been due for one more year after that. So year 11, you would have seen the largest really first step up in tax revenue. So it's likely a tax revenue generating bill, right? So that was done end of 2019 and did kind of in some shape or form increase taxes, right? By increasing tax revenue, by removing some tax benefits. I will also say on the flip side, from a public policy standpoint, I'm 100% in favor of removing the stretch, (laughs) even though like every advisor and IRA owner, including right myself, probably didn't benefit from that. But I, I think it's the right position. I don't believe that children and grandchildren and friends should have stretch capabilities over retirement accounts in a tax deferred manner or tax advantage. It doesn't actually align with some of the other rulings that we have out there, right? Supreme Court said inherited accounts are not retirement accounts. So then why do we have tax benefits throughout our retirement? It actually doesn't align. So I think that was the right public policy decision, even though it didn't help (laughs) anyone. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Well, listen, Jamie, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. And we ask everybody the same final question. And that is, what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? And so today, let's see. Uh, (laughs) It was a challenging morning. So (laughs) the car wouldn't start this morning. (laughs) It was cold out. It was was very cold. My door was frozen. Battery was dead. I had all three kids, so couldn't get them anywhere. Cars fixed at this point. So what did I do? I survived that, which is, you know. (laughs) What will you be doing later? (laughs) I am going to go for a run today. I know that's really important for me today. So I want to do a run. At one point, I was very disciplined with my running. And I actually ran for 3,004 consecutive days outside. Wow. And so I used to do all my writing when I ran. I would write pretty much an entire article in my head and come back and put it down and type it up within just a couple minutes. I'm not as good as that as I once was. I think I stress too much while I run now. I don't have the clear head I once had. And I'll blame right. it on my hair right now. So, <laughs> But I will run and that helps get me some peace. And I, I can focus and problem solve when I do that. So it's a good way to exercise, do some cardio and get a clear head. On a morning like today, it'll certainly wake you up too. That's for sure. (laughs) So listen, if people want to find out more or follow your writings, how do they find you? 
Yeah, two best ways. I'm pretty active on Twitter, at least like from a work perspective. I log in every day and <laughs> check it out. And I'm at retirement risks there. So that's I try to keep most of my Twitter to retirement related content, then maybe some food takes. And then my website is jamiehopkins.com. It's a beautiful looking website. There's a contact feature there. I'd still say today my website more serves as maybe like a collection of articles, things like that. So there's not a lot of true engagement on it. I'd like to add that some point later. But if you want to see articles, what I write, that's what's going to show up there. And I'm sure there's a lot of great information in there. We'll have all that contact info in the show notes for our listeners so they can find you. I want to thank you again for taking time out of your day for doing this and spending it with us and make it a great day. I want to thank Jamie Hopkins for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset Show. Jamie is a true thought leader in the wealth management space and a student and teacher of his craft. Whether it be new legislation, planning techniques, or simply sharing his knowledge with others, he's always there, willing, and ready to help. As a Carson partner firm, it is a huge value add having him as part of our team. Jamie is a key component in keeping us and our clients aware of all the new opportunities that may present themselves as changes take place from a legislative and economic standpoint. Jamie can be found across all social media platforms, and all the contact information needed to find him can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandfinancial.com and be sure to smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content. And listen, please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. Be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about the mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.